Good evening and welcome to Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. I'm Dalinda Scholz and with me in the studio I have Dr. Peter Hammond. Today's topic we will be discussing is responding to wildfires and other disasters. Dr. Hammond, you just had a celebratory Reformation Fire 500 conference on the 17th of April. Can you tell us what this day was all about? Yes, it's not often you get to celebrate the 500th anniversary of anything of such historical importance as this, which was Martin Luther's bold stand in front of the emperor on the 18th of April, 1521. My conscience has captured the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. And, and this is really the birth of freedom of conscience and freedom of thought and freedom of opinion, freedom of, of association, freedom of the press as well. Martin Luther actually laid the foundations for Western Christian civilization by emphasizing the revolutionary concept that we can have freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of thought based on the word of God, not on what popes and councils say because they've often erred and contradicted themselves. It's not on what the politicians or the popes have said. It's what the word of God says. And this is the foundation of constitutionalism where we are ruled by what is written, uh, not just by what is said, uh, but by what is written on the revealed word of God. So this was, in many ways, what we had in mind was a vision of, of a sparking gain, the spark that led to the revival fires of the Reformation. And the next day we have this horrible, destructive wildfire uh, striking uh, the very suburb where we were meeting uh, in Rondebosch and uh, ash was covering our venue and suit was coming in. The Midday sun was even blotted out so that it was just orange. The whole sky went orange and dull and, and dark at midday because of the smoke and the flames. And it just shows again this wildfire, which is so devastating Cape Town. It's symbolic also of the destructive fires of humanism and evolutionism and situation ethics and so many things that are sweeping through society, undermining families and ethics and doctrine and undermining congregations and families. So um, what a challenge that here we are facing the fires of the world and the fires of the word. And uh, the Bible says in James 3 verse 5, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. And that's talking about the tongue that can do a lot of damage, especially in the realm of gossip. But uh, then there's another kind of fire that's a positive fire. In Jeremiah, he speaks about, is not my word like a fire? like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. So there's a positive revival fires like at Pentecost, uh, but then there's the destructive fires of the world. And it just reminds us again, we're in a, in a time of crisis. Yeah. Now this fire that started on Table Mountain the day after the conference, that it burned down the special collections library of UCT, um, of the University of Cape Town and the Mostert Mall, also the Rhodes Memorial. Now, I know you as a man who have gathered and distributed tons of books, literature, and, and Bibles over the years. In a sense, it feels like a part of history have been lost through this devastation. How can we s respond to the loss of valuable history so many have experienced? Yes, indeed. It, it, it's very tragic. And uh, uh, fires are always destructive. In fact, um, I was... At one time, a fireman, and uh, while I was studying at Baptist Theological Seminary, my job that put me through college was working six days a week, eight hours a night in a fire brigade based at Epping. So uh, I had to put out fires, and I've known about uh, 
uh, the devastation caused by fires and always been very concerned to combat fire hazards because it is terrible when it rages. And you think of the University of Cape Town Library, the uh, Diogo Library, it's a 1.2 million volume library. It's 1.2 million books or journals. Sure. And uh, not that all of them were destroyed because some of the most valuable selections were apparently behind fire doors, which when the fire alarm activated, these shields came down. And so we certainly hope that a lot of the precious irreplaceable things were preserved. We don't know yet because forensics haven't been done. Uh, it's still not even safe to enter. But it included, for example, the architect Herbert Baker's archives and a whole lot of things that, that there wouldn't even be other copies in the world. So uh, I know that that was devastating. And many people asking, how could a bushfire, a felt fire, possibly reach a stone building in the middle of University of Cape Town? It doesn't matter if you've got a burning bush floating in there. How does it get through stone uh, into the inside of a library? So considering most of the buildings around UCT on the outskirts were defected, how did this one in the middle get it? So there's a lot of talk, speculation at this stage because forensics and investigations haven't been done that, that arson was the, the, was the cause of much of the fires in there. But um, some historic monuments like uh, Mostert's Mill, this is the oldest windmill in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, built in 1796. And uh, interestingly, uh, it only exists today because Cecil John Rhodes, when he was Prime Minister of the Cape, bought it up and out of his personal funds and donated it to the people of the Cape. Uh, and so wonderful that we've got that heritage, but it had a thatch roof and um, some <laughs> burning bush floating across the double lane highway of the M3, which surprised me that it could have done it, but uh, the thatch caught fire. I'm surprised again because all thatched roofs are vulnerable. And for this reason, thatched roofs tend to have sprinkler systems built into the the top of the roof, so that if there's any fire, automatically uh, a sprinkler will activate and put right. out the fire. And in fact, in game reserves, all the thatch roofs have it, and uh, because danger of lightning and up in Transvaal in particular. And I would be surprised if a national monument treasure like Mostert's Mill didn't have that precaution. And so one's got to ask what went wrong, why was such fire protection not made? And there is a way of, of putting fire retardant. Uh, types of varnish over thatched roofs uh, to prevent it from catching fire too. But this has to be reapplied every year or two because of rain washing it and diluting it. But there's no reason why the sprinkler system shouldn't work. So there's, there's questions at, at all times over all of these things and I trust there's going to be some serious questions asked as to what human error meant, made this so disastrous. So for example, uh, when one of our people was driving into town to church in the morning. Uh, it was only about 8.30, and you could see there was a small fire by the side of the road by the uh, M3, by the um, hospital bend, uh, opposite from uh, the Kruderskir uh, uh, Hospital, and on the slopes of Devil's Peak. But there were several fire engines there already, and it didn't look big, and it didn't look, there wasn't any wind at that time, and it didn't look serious. So he surprisingly came back from church here that spread quite a bit. When I uh, crossed over the N2, I could see at a distance smoke and I could see a fire at Hospital Bend and I could see there were fire trucks there and and uh, um, the lights. And so it looked to me like it was perfectly controllable. When I was in the fire brigade, we had put out 
bigger fires than that with less fire trucks than they had there. They had about five fire trucks at uh, something like uh, 9.30 or so. So I, I didn't think there was a problem. Well, when the service ended, I was astounded to see the whole mountainside aflame and the smoke covering the sun. And, and so I think there's some questions as to how did it get so out of control? Was this accidental? As they say, vagrant fire, was this malicious? They've apparently arrested two arsonists, one of which says that he, in fact, set the original fire, according to the reports. And uh, J.P. Smith, from uh, the committee member for uh, the Cape Town Municipality for Security, says all fires are man-made, whether they are uh, caused by accident or by malice and needs to be investigated. But uh, this definitely had a human origin. And it seems that there might have been more than one fire that we're dealing with. And certainly the pattern makes it look like there were multiples. Now, some people have sent me screenshots of rabble-rousing leftists, Marxist types, student representative council members and others who on their Facebook pages were saying, get tins of paraffin comrades, get petrol, go and uh, start more fires. We need to burn down all the colonial edifices and you know take this opportunity. So whether those are just um, incendiary comments by irresponsible Facebook warriors, or whether these were actually uh, real uh, incitements which, which led to people doing it, remains to be investigated and found out. But certainly treasures have been, have been burned and a lot of damage has been done. And let's not forget the creatures that live in the forest and the animals and the birds and uh, the porcupines and others. And uh, SBCA and others need, need help in caring for the creatures that they are finding who need um, help and who've got burn wounds. And so, so much destruction caused by either thoughtlessness or malice. But I think also the response in terms of the firefighting needs to be looked at as to was the human error in responding because it didn't look out of control at eight, nine, even 10. What went wrong? How did it get so out of control? Why is it that there could have been so many fire trucks on the scene so early and yet it still got out of control later? So um, it's early, too early for us to say, but I think in the weeks to come, the facts will come out. Yes. Now, the fire response team were prepared to respond to this fire, but 4,000 students had to evacuate and become dependent on support offered by the response teams. What can one do if you find yourself affected by a devastating scenario like this, where you become dependent on the help of others? Well, I must say, as, as somebody who's, who's always been brought up to fight fires and to be involved in nature conservation, I would have thought the first concern of every student, staff member and faculty member of University of Cape Town would be to rush to fight the fire and to do what repair uh, needs to be done or to do what one can do to save as much material. And it's very disturbing to see pictures of people standing taking pictures of the, the burning instead of doing something to stop the flames or stop it spreading or to rescue things that are on the path of it. And um, I'm, I'm disturbed by the reports that these students, apparently many of these UCT students being evacuated, are being housed in hotels. And now we see a whole lot of activists them demanding that this uh, studies be suspended, the tests be suspended, the assignments be suspended. Now, they might be staying in hotels with, with even uh, internet connectivity, but they're wanting the week off and they're wanting trauma counselling. Well, 
I think this is a very sad um, commentary on the self-centeredness of many of our people in our society. When there's a disaster, and this is affecting them at University of Cape Town, there's thousands of students. Could they not have mobilized to fight this fire more effectively? I've been mobilized into fighting fires with absolutely no equipment, no protective things. Uh, I remember particularly in the military, we would often be sent out then. We weren't even given any equipment. We didn't have goggles, we didn't have anything, but we'd, we'd uh, take some branches and use it to beat out, out bushfires. And, of course, you can't do this in the forest, but a lot of the fires that we were dealing with was just bushfires, open felt fainbos, and you can beat out the fires there. That's a sweaty, hard job, but the fact is uh, we've done it, and uh, frequently you can, you can stop bushfires if you've got enough people. And I've been with sometimes not even 100 men, and we were able to beat out an entire bushfire. And... You've got thousands of students. Are they all so helpless that they all need to be put into hotels and need trauma counselling when they haven't done anything to protect the university, the library, or anything else that's gone up in flames? In fact, one wonders if some students weren't even the ones who might have set fire to the library itself because there are revolutionaries on campus who back in 2015 demanded to rip down the monument to the founder of the university who was paying for the education. So... Uh, it's it's quite disturbing what's going on. I would like to think that more people in Cape Town would respond like we've seen. We've seen some people in Cape Town pouring in gifts to the to care for the uh, fireworkers and the uh, people of the sand parks and uh, going into a Roland Street fire station, going up to the Newlands fire station, helping the SBCA. That's what you expect from a community. What you don't expect is self-centered, self-indulgent, uh, soft don't disturb my comfort zone. I need to be put up in a hotel. Uh, I need trauma counseling and uh, we must have all our studies suspended for a week. I don't know what that says about those students, but um, I think there should be some self-reflection too. As to how do we respond to a crisis? Do we do something to help solve the problem? Are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution? Well, that is a great question. I think people respond differently within crisis, some might uh, be moved to action, some might go into a more of a fight or flight mode and feel helpless in the situation. In continuously responding to a crisis when things happen that are out of your control, how can one press into what God is saying when things happen that are out of your control? Or would God warn and prepare his people? I believe God expects us to rise to the occasion because, you know, you don't have the grace for a situation before that situation arrives. God gives us the grace when we need it. And so when we are in a crisis situation, it, it reminds me of D.L. Moody, one of these great evangelists of the 19th century. D.L. Moody was on a ship crossing the Atlantic. He did that many a time, preaching both sides of the Atlantic. Great preacher. And uh, he was in his cabin when somebody ran down the hallway shouting, fire, fire. And... Uh, his friend with him said, um, let's pray. And uh, Dale Moody rushed outdoors said, you pray, I'm going to go and put the fire out. And there is a time to pray and there's a time to act. So, for example, when the army of the Lord of Israel was defeated, the Battle of Ai, we read in, in uh, Joshua chapter 6 that Joshua fell on his face before the Lord in the tabernacle. And God came to him and said, Joshua, what are you doing lying down on your face? Get up. There's sin in the camp. So there's a time to pray, but there's also a time to act. And a fire is an excellent time to act. I mean, if it's at all within our capability, if we are 
within area where we can do something positive, we should act. Because prayer is a foundation for action. Prayer is not an excuse for inactivity or disobedience. So uh, as Christians, we must watch and pray. We must pray and act. We must pray and then put feet to our faith afterwards. So we need to pray for God to give us the grace and the wisdom and the strength and the courage to respond to these matters. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, of course, in life, one can have a strategy for living um, based on biblical foundations. One can establish priorities, do your planning, and set goals where you are working towards your goals according to your plans as you submit them to God. In your discipleship training manual, you quote, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. How can we plan for the future? That's a good question. So uh, one of the things I think that's always wise is to is to plan for times of crisis because inevitably times of crisis will come. And that's why all of our missionaries do first aid training. And many have gone multiple ways up because you know that you will come across people. You don't wait to... Uh, Noah didn't wait for the flood before he started to build the ark. He was building the ark long before the flood came. And you can't get training in how to first aid when a person's injured. You need to have already got your training for that. Similarly with firefighting. And uh, I'm grateful that when I was at school in Rhodesia, we uh, had bushcraft training. So in school, part of our normal school training, aside from being taught woodwork and uh, carpentry and metalwork and shooting and a whole lot of other things, we were sent off uh, once a year to go to bush training where we'd be put in the hands of game range and taught tracking, anti-tracking, survival, how to get water, how to find direction, how to get shelter, uh, how to survive in the bush. Uh, and, of course, the bush is uh, quite a, a dangerous place to be in many ways uh, if you don't know it. Uh, one textbook I've still got with me is Don't Die in the Bundu. It was a textbook written in 1970, <laughs> and uh, Don't Die in the Bundu. And it's, it's got survival tactics. Uh, again, I remember reading, uh, watching the film uh, Durkee Lost in the Desert, which came out in the 60s, based on the true story of a young South African boy uh, who crash-landed with his uncle in the Namib, and his uncle died, and he was on his own, just with his little dog, uh, from the Cessna plane that crashed. And he was in, in the Kalahari and Namib for, for uh, weeks uh, on his own, and he made a lot of mistakes, but he ultimately survived. And I remember it being such a lesson, and uh, from a very young age, looking and thinking, You've got to think ahead. I must always have a knife with me. must always have a hat, always have a water bottle. And I remember as a young boy always having this attitude, even from age 12, this idea of you've got to be prepared. And if this happens, and this is what you've got to do to survive. And so uh, in the course of my life, I've regularly found times to put into practice what I've learned, either to put out fires or to help someone injured at an accident site or to help people in a way out of an accident without uh, causing further injuries like person might have broken a bone, might have uh, might be in danger of paralysis if you don't immobilize the neck and you know how to uh, get a towel, duct tape it around the neck, uh, create a neck brace if there isn't one, how to bring the person out on the board so that they're protected, take them to the board as well so that they don't they can't um, move and cause damage you know, because we don't know about fractures yet. And and of course if there's a fire danger in a car uh, and you've got to get the person out quicker, how to go about this, you've got to make decisions between Do you first deal with the fire or do you deal with, with getting the person out? Because sometimes it's quicker to put out the fire and then you've got time to evacuate the person. 
Other times the fire's out of control, you've got to move the person first. These are decisions you've got to have worked out beforehand, your skills. So getting skills that could help other people in time of a crisis is critical because it's too late when the crisis hits. You've got to have that fire extinguisher, have that training, have the first aid kit, know how to use it, or whatever else it may be in that crisis. But I'm afraid a lot of people drift through life uh, like the dead fish floating downstream instead of the steelheaded trout going upstream, and in a crisis are absolutely paralyzed because they're not prepared. And as Christians, we want to be a help to our neighbor. We want to love our neighbor. We want to care for those in need. So this means preparing ourselves. Just think of when it came to the crisis in the garden, our Lord called his disciples to watch and pray. Now, we read that they all fell asleep. And so when the crisis came, when Judas came and they were being arrested by the chief priests and the Sanhedrin gods, all the disciples fled. Their hearts failed them. Why? Because they failed to watch and pray. And because they failed to watch and pray, they failed to stand when a moment of testing crisis came. That's a great story. You also mentioned Noah in the Bible. Um, and Noah is someone that outstood a natural disaster and um, how does God choose who to spare when it comes to um, just the story of Noah and how God spoke to Noah to build an ark um, to preserve him and his family from a disaster? Well, I've even been up to the ark encounter in Kentucky in America where Anson Genesis under Ken Ham has rebuilt a two-scale ark and stocked it with all the different details and scientific insights to understand what was involved in, and talk about years, decades even, of hard work by Noah and his sons in building this ark. If they were just building a boat for their family to survive, it's one thing, but they were building a boat for all the thousands of species in the world to survive in and to survive in for a year. What a lot of forethought planning and hard work, and they had to get it right because you know, one leak could sink the yes, whole enterprise. Indeed. You had to have a perfect work <laughs> ethic. And and let's face it, a boat's only as good as its weakest link. So so Noah's a wonderful example that that when God calls, he also equips. And surely he chose Noah for the reason that he was he, he must have had the skills. Maybe he was a shipbuilder. Uh, many people assume he's a farmer, but there's no reason to assume that because he did such a brilliant job of shipbuilding, maybe he was a shipbuilder by trade. And people lived much longer at that stage and he may have acquired a lot of experience in that time because the ark that he built was obviously phenomenal. It was uh, the greatest uh, floating um, uh, boat ever produced in history, uh, what it had to accomplish and do, and, and so much hang on it. Uh, in fact, all of our existence and the wildlife around us. So uh, I think we've got to assume that what God wants is our availability. And if we're available, he is able. So we should be more concerned about am I available, am I surrendered, am I teachable, am I open and listening and sensitive to the Lord. That's the most important thing because God is able to teach us and train us and guide us the way we need to be. The question is how available and open and listening are we? Yeah, if I think of the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 13 to 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a fount of water springing up to eternal life. Now Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Dr. Hammond, how does dependency in the kingdom of God work? Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Um, abide in me, he said. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Andrew Murray, Abide in Christ. And, and it's so important that we know how to abide. If God's words abide in us and, and we abide in him, then whatever we ask can be given to us because whatever we pray in the Lord's name in his will will be done for us. So definitely it means waiting on the Lord. It means uh, being soaked with the word of God, studying the word of God to to abide in Christ, to wait on him, to be dependent on him, to be teachable and responsive and, and to be uh, teachable, listening to what the Lord is saying. We need to be studying his word. We need to be both listening to what God's saying to us through the word of God and and waiting on how he's going to guide us to apply those principles. So this is critical because in any crisis, when a moment of crisis comes, people's lives are at stake. And if we are prayer prepared, prepared by prayer, uh, we could be a great blessing and a help. And unfortunately, a lot of people act like just um, stunned sheep and rabbits paralyzed in the headlights when a crisis hits. And therefore, they just become another problem for others to try and, and deal with instead of being those who can rise to the occasion and help usher people to safety or or think of what needs to be done and and so on. So I I really hope that crises like this wildfire in Cape Town cause people to, to think about a lot of things, including if you're in your house and a fire's ripping through and they say, you've got to evacuate the house, you've got two minutes, what do you take? What's your priorities? You know, this sort of thing. So there's a lot of things to ask and questions like that. And I've been brought up in war zones and I've worked in war zones and I've got 40 years experience going into dangerous areas where you know that if you go in the field, you've got to be willing to lose everything you take in the field, including your life. And so I've looked through those issues quite a bit, but a lot of people living in the city have never considered those questions. And I can just imagine how devastated some people must have been to suddenly have to evacuate the house with just minutes notice. That is a very valid thing to think about. Um, thank you, Dr. Hammond, for your time. Um, there's also an upcoming faith, family, and future event happening on the 13th of May. Could you tell us a bit more about this day and the tradition of when it started? Yes, so 13th of May, Thursday, 13th of May, is Ascension Day. And so Ascension Day, 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, we celebrate the ascension of Christ. And this is so important because it celebrates the authority of Christ, the Great Commission, and that he has risen and ascended and he's reigning on high and he's coming again to judge the living and dead. So we're going to be holding our Faith, Family, and the Future Conference celebrating 30 years of Africa Christian Action on Ascension Day, the 13th of May. It's a Thursday. And uh, this will begin at 9 in the morning. It's uh, open to all who are part of the campaign to be salt and light in the communities, to be watchmen in the walls who want to stand for the right to life of pre-born babies, for family values, for biblical marriage, Bible-based education, controlled by parents, aided by the church, but independent of the state. All those are welcome to join this conference as we evaluate what we have learned from the last 30 years of Africa Christian Action and uh, uh, what we need to do to plan for the future. So uh, do contact us. That would be at info at christianaction.org.today or actually they could email you to delinda at christianaction.org.za to get more details or go onto our website www.christianaction.org. 
www.ascensiondayoffaith.org.za. Remember, Ascension Day, 13 May. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, um, for your insight and wisdom. Good day. And God bless.